Hey now, what's going on? It's Jeff. I just wanted to take a quick moment to let you know that you are listening to the audio of a live video stream from the Frumis YouTube channel. It may reference visuals that can't be heard, obviously, but if you want the whole enchilada, go to youtube.com backslash Frumis. That's F-R-U-M-E-S-S. Because who doesn't like a whole enchilada? Suddenly Seymour is standing beside me good evening it's saturday night and for those of you who are not out doing more exciting things come and join the conversation as we discuss little chop of horrors well 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 a little shop um, <clears throat> I briefly flirted with a, uh, talk show for a aborted campaign called little talk of horrors. And you could find the first two episodes or one. Yeah. Two episodes are on this channel and it never went anywhere, but there's a lot of episodes in the bank somewhere. I just got back from seeing the Northman with my dad and it was really great. And I want to talk about it, but we'll save that for another episode because we are talking little shop of horrors. Let's do that now. Um, I love musicals. I, I'm just, I'm a sucker for musicals, but the, the, the thing is the musical has to be, it has to be campy and cult. Like I don't want to see Oklahoma. Yes. I've seen cats. I need to see something that's like quirky and weird and also a musical all at the same time. Meet the Feebles, Forbidden Zone, Rocky Horror Picture Show, Little Shop of Horrors, Phantom of the Paradise, Rock and Rule, uh, you know, Cry Baby. Even if the movie doesn't isn't a full on musical, it has a musical element to it. I'm I'm all I'm I'm all there. I'm I'm there for it. Ra- um Little Shop of Horrors is weird in that. So it started off as a B picture. Roger Corman had sets for two extra days and wanted to see if he could shoot a full film in two days. And that's literally how Little Shop of Horrors came to be. One of Jack Nicholson's first roles, he plays the sadistic uh, dentist patient. And... Uh, like literally one of his first films, Jack Nicholson got to start with Roger Corman as well. And, um, and then what happened was, and this like became kind of popular a whole bunch. I mean, we, we've seen that we saw this later with reefer madness, the musical, but back in the eighties in 1982, I think it was, uh, there was an adaptation of this little obscure public domain film, little shop of horrors, and it was turned into a, a, a music, an off-Broadway musical. And they, <laughs> they, I mean, it was just brilliant. What a brilliant idea. They took this weird B-movie idea and sort of repackaged it and remade it as a musical where you have a singing carnivorous plant named Audrey too. It was just excellent, really excellent. Little Shop of Horrors is one of my favorite films, hands down. It, it, it's it's in there. If, if I had to do like a top 20 list, it would make that. Top 20 list in 1986, Frank Oz, the guy, the voice of Yoda and the voice of, you know, he's a filmmaker and he's also, you know, uh, worked with the 
Muppets and whatnot. Uh, Frank Oz directed uh, the musical film adaptation of the off-Broadway smash success. And it is it is really, you know, it was made at this magical time where like special effect, like nothing's computer generated yet. It was made in 86. It's like the height of like analog and optical special effects. And what they did, the, the filmmaking, the ingenuity, especially that went into the original ending, which we're going to talk about. It, it's just a sight to be seen. For many years, I grew up on the theatrical version of this film, and for many, many years, all we all we had was that theatrical version. But there was like this rumor that there was a director's cut, that there was a lost ending. It was the original ending, which is very close to the original. The original ending for that Roger Corman film is really dark. Everybody gets eaten by the plant, and when the flat when the plant when Audrey two uh, blossoms, it's flowers. You see the faces of the people at eight. We didn't quite get that in the movie, the original movie ending for little shop of horrors. In fact, it was even darker. The, I'm talking about the, the musical. It got even darker. And instead, instead we get the plants taking over the world. We see uh Seymour, gets eaten, Audrey gets eaten, everybody gets eaten. The plant wins, the mean green mother from outer space. Now, it was recently brought to my attention that Levi Stubbs, who did the voice for Audrey 2, was in fact putting a Screaming Jay Hawkins inflection on his voice. I always said it was a tragedy that Screaming Jay Hawkins was not the voice of Audrey 2. It was right before Screaming Jay Hawkins got into pictures, like got into movies again. He had been living in obscurity, and uh, Jim Jarmusch started putting him in movies. Jiffy Squib, turn that damn thing off. Um, and you just hear it in Audrey's voice. She's like, oh, my God, that's Screaming Jay Hawkins. And apparently that's Levi Stubbs doing Screaming Jay Hawkins. The song Mean Green Mother from Outer Space won a Grammy, I believe. And um, Levi Stubbs performed it at the Oscars, I think, or the Grammys or the Golden Globes with the with the actual man eating plant in the background. Crazy stuff. Crazy stuff. Let's go. Let's go to my little article here. I don't like to advertise this website, so I'm not going to say their name because they bother me for personal reasons. But I did like the idea for this article this is written by tyler mccready and who knows how much tyler mccready was paid to write this article might have been upwards of 18 to 25 dollars for i don't know what this is 12 1200 words kind of disgusting but and it's for a website that i'm not going to say but the author is tyler mccready so go follow him on twitter why audiences are ready for the original ending in the Little Shop of Horrors remake. Now, do we need a remake of Little Shop of Horrors? As a matter of fact, I'm here to tell you that Little Shop of Horrors is, is one of those films that never, ever, ever needs to be remade. I think that you can... Yes, Michelle. Michelle, that's right, $18. Um, that is... Uh, something of the going rate. And let me tell you, those rates fluctuate. I, I, I don't want to, 
I don't want to talk about this. It's it, they're not the only ones, but let's just say that in the world of freelance article writing, the rates are very low. Think about that. That's $18 for hours and hours and hours of work that ultimately you won't even own the intellectual rights to the copyright to your article. The website owns the copyright to your article. Terrible, 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 terrible. Let's just say I'm glad I didn't sign a co any contracts. Uh, that's for certain. Okay, so let's read a little bit about this. Why? So they are remaking this movie. Do I need... Like in 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 all honesty, do I need a remake of Little Shop of Horrors? Not really, not really. It's okay. Like we like it's fine the way it is. Like just leave it alone. I mean, films the original films themselves they don't go anywhere when you remake them. You just get a a, a worse version, or maybe a, a an inferior version, or a, a a an attempted cash in. You know, that sort of thing. Michelle, I agree. We don't need a remake for sure. For sure. We don't need one, but we might be getting one. We might be getting one. Um, I guess it's been in the works for about two years. COVID probably sidelined it. Now, here's the thing. Like I said, as much as I don't want a remake of Little Shop of Horrors, I love the things that I love. Like, I always want there to be more of it in the world, even if it's not as good. You know, um, I don't know what that is. It's like it's something to look forward to that's new. You know, I've I grew up with this movie. This movie is one year younger than me. I've I've had it for my whole life. So the idea of them trying to do something fresh and new, because you know what? For every, you know, 100 remakes, you know, 99 of them are bad, but like one of them, sometimes they can sometimes they just come up with really interesting uh approaches to the material that you never considered and makes it feel fresh allows you to relive that story over and over again in a new kind of way. So let's read. Let's read on. When producer David Geffen first considered a musical rendition of Roger Corman's 1960 B-movie horror, The Little Shop of Horrors, he, his, he thought it was the worst idea that he had ever heard. Despite that, he decided to produce the Howard Ashman and Alan Menken's off-Broadway musical titled Little Shop of Horrors. And it's a good thing that he did. After, after a wildly successful stage run, Geffen signed on to produce the film adaptation. Geffen, of course, is from Geffen Records. And you know who what Geffen Records is. From the very beginning of production, however, Geffen knew that the musical couldn't be adapted in its entirety. He warned Ashman and director Frank Oz that the musical's grim ending would need to be changed for the movie. Because here's the thing. It's not in the original film. It's very dark. And then the, 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 the adaptation musically shows the plants taking over the world. And there's a song, Don't Feed the Plants. Because what happens is the plants spread all over the world. They become commercialized. The the you know, if you can't tell what the metaphor is here, it's a very easy metaphor. The plant, which is green, like money, represents cap the capitalistic monster. He keeps feeding blood and meat uh, to the capitalist monster so it grows and grows until it consumes everything, including himself. So the plant spreads, all the plants start eating everybody, and a song comes up. Don't feed the plants as the human race fights for its existence. And yeah, so that's the ending that the musical comes up with. 
They're like, how can we make this ridiculous Roger Corman story more ridiculous? We're going to make the plants take over the world. There, it turns out they're from outer space. That wasn't in the original film either. Turns out the plants from outer space. It's a mean green mother and it's really mad and wants to spread. Um, so, so after a while, so like I said, after a while, or after, after our friend Tyler says, after a wildly successful stage run, Geffen signed on to produce the film adaptation from the very beginning of production. However, Geffen knew that the musical couldn't be adapted in its entirety. He warned Ashman and director Frank Oz that the musical's grim ending would need to be changed for the movie, but he let them film Ashman's ending anyway, which costs something like $5 million to do just the ending alone to do it. It like the, like, you know, a, a cinematic version of the stage musical was $5 million after two catastrophic test screenings. Now here's the thing, a te- in, in the test, here's how the test screenings work. This is fascinating. Now, I'm not a fan of test screenings. I think they're, you know, that's that's the ugliest part of of artistic endeavors meeting commerce. You need to do test screenings because you have to make sure that, you know, this is where art is a a commercialized product that needs to turn a profit and it therefore needs to test well with audiences so that people will go and see the movie. You have to do market research. You can't just have an artistic vision and release it out into the world because who knows what will happen or not happen. In any case, uh, they scored a 13 when you need a minimum of a 50 just to get move ahead and get theatrical distribution. So what they did was then they did another one. It didn't didn't work out that didn't work out well. Um, and so they had these these terrible test screenings, which proved Geffen right. The film's ending was reshot for a more lighthearted resolution, and they took apart the song Mean Green Mother from Outer Space. They like took out little segments of it. You know, Seymour shoots uh, the the Mean Green Mother with with his little revolver, and the bullets bounce off. She's impervious to to the bullets. Uh, they they change everything. They filmed. They go back to suburbia, as you know, and but it's left. It's still left a little ambiguous because we see in the garden. There is a little mini Audrey too smiling, suggesting that this could happen all over again. But ultimately, um, Audrey and Seymour get to go somewhere that's green. That's what that song, somewhere that's green. But it's really a double entendre. It's foreshadowing what happens in the original dark ending because going somewhere that's green has nothing to do with going to, to the suburbs and having a green lawn and a green garden. Going somewhere that's green means getting consumed by the plant. And that's ultimately what happens uh, to both Audrey and and Seymour. She says, you know, as she's getting uh, uh, masticated by the plant, Audrey, she gets she she gets eaten in both versions. She gets chewed on. But in the theatrical version, Seymour pulls her out, saves her. He electrocutes the plant, exploding the plant, and they go to the suburbs. And the other one. She's like dying and she says, feed me to the plant because I know that um, because I want to I wanted to grow big and strong. She sacrifices herself for the capitalist machine. So it's really like an anti-capitalism sort of statement that's being made. Now, did Roger Corman have that in mind when he was making his film? No, I think it was just Roger Corman being schlocky for the sake of schlocky. But that's the beautiful. I think Little Shop of Horrors is a great example of pulling 
um, you know, pulling strong, you know, themes out of material that maybe, you know, might not be in such high regard. It's totally possible. It's totally there. All of that subtext is there. Um, so that here, so what happens anyway? So what ends up happening? Um, the, they reshoot the ending for the lighthearted resolution film audiences in 1986 might not have been ready for Ashman's ending, but with a remake on the way, could today's audiences prove different? I think so. 100%. And even back then they should have gone with that ending. They were too worried about box office. Um, I don't think, I mean, films today, like whatever budget little shop of horrors remake would be, it's not like the tent. It's not like a tentpole Marvel movie that is completely predicated on box office success. If anything, it's the opposite where now like box office success doesn't matter the way it did in 1986. And therefore, you know, who cares what the audience thinks like the, the this article is kind of a moot point in the sense that it doesn't really matter. You should just do what artistically is right for the film. And it doesn't really matter because box office doesn't matter. And that's why the ending was changed in the first place. Little Shop of Horrors has a long and twisted journey, especially when it comes to its finale. Corman's first Little Shop of Horrors was conceived when he learned that the studio set, which he filmed Buckets of Blood, had no projects on deck after rap. He and screenwriter Charles B. Griffith brainstormed the idea of a man-eating plant and created what became Hollywood's most notorious joke the movie that was shot in just two days. And you go and you look at all the stuff that's in that movie, and you're like, wow, it's hard to believe that they did that in just two days, but they did. Though rumors spread about wagers on new or blah, though rumors spread about wagers or new rules for the film industry, Corman asserts that he just wanted to see if it could be done. That's right. They were saying that that wage that um that there were that there were uh, I think I think pay rules were changing. There were a bunch of rules that were changing, and that they wanted to get one more picture out under the old system before things switched over. That that I'd heard that, but I guess Corman says that he just wanted wanted to see if it could be done. The black comedy B movie reached audiences through two double features and received positive reviews, going on to an extensive run on broadcast television which is where a teenage Howard Ashman first watched it. And yeah, there's, there's Seymour Krellborn and, and Mr. Mushnick. Uh, fresh off of their collaboration on God Bless You, Mr. Rosewater, Ashman and Menken wanted to make their next project something fun and offbeat. Ashman had Menken watch Corman's Little Shop and the two immediately recognized the musical potential of the story. And I believe this begun a trend we started seeing, then we had Evil Dead, the musical. Reanimator got its own musical. Like all these films, Night of the Living Dead has a musical. Like all these films <clears throat> that um, that take place in relatively confined spaces could be adapted for the stage. <clears throat> Excuse me, I have a frog in my throat and it's not going away. <clears throat> much, of the <clears throat> much of the stage musical they wrote together follows the same general story beats of the 1960 film. That's true. Uh, with the major exception being the ending. Corman's film ends ended with the protagonist of his story, Seymour Krellboind, I think it's Krellboind, uh, played by Jonathan Hayes, being discovered for his crimes by authorities and getting eaten by his plant, Audrey Jr., which, at, which afterward withers and dies. 
for his musical, but that's not true. He actually hides in the plant and the plant swallows him whole, something like that. Uh, for his musical, Ashman takes that downer ending and multiplies it. When Ashman and Menken de uh, debuted the uh, work at the WPA Theater, audiences reckoned with grim fates for Seymour Krelborn, uh, as well as Audrey. So Ellen Green, who plays that, uh, who's in the movie, she originated the character of Audrey in 1982, and Mr. 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 Mushnick, as well as the uh, Orin, the dentist. Whereas in the 60s film, only Seymour perishes. That's not true. A bunch of people perish. Uh, in the stage musical, all three get eaten by the plant, Audrey too. As it grows bigger and stronger, the plant then conquers the world as, it, as the cuttings are sold across the nation. The show ends with the musical number, Don't we just went over this, Don't Feed the Plants, which hammers into the minds of the audience the importance of the story's moral lesson. But does it say what the moral lesson is? Yes, it does. Ashman's themes engage the audience with a point to prove about class struggle and the human condition. I would disagree. It's about capitalism. It's about the green machine. Don't feed the green machine. The musical's ending is a scathing critique of commodity fetishism in the age of late capitalism. Okay, there you go. There it is. Seymour is so desperate to push himself out of destitution and squalor that he sets aside his morals and commits acts that he knows are wrong, as evident by his frequent and melodic internal conflicts. Which, you know, that's where we get songs like Supper Time, you know, uh, or when uh, during Feed Me, um, there's the sort of like the middle eight part where he goes, I don't know, I don't know, don't know, don't know, mutilation. Um, and it's great. And it's great. It's the same thing, like, you know, and then you could talk about like the the moral ambiguity of what what Seymour does with Mr. Mushnick. He knows that the plan is going to eat Mr. Mushnick. He allows Mr. Mushnick to get eaten. Uh, and what he's doing is technically evil, but Mr. Mushnick is kind of a scumbag. He's always treated Seymour badly. And it's kind of like this weird gray area where you, we want Mr. Mushnick to, I mean, you have to imagine that things wouldn't have changed if Mr. Mushnick had survived. If Seymour had beat town and Mr. Mushnick was in charge of the plant, the plant, would have, would have, uh, you know, Mr. Mushnick was far more greedier than Seymour. But it's interesting too how Seymour literally gives his blood to the plant. He like pricks his fingers and lets the the, the plant uh, suck on his blood. I mean, it, he literally gives it his blood, sweat, and tears until the plant demands him in his entirety, his body, uh, as as sacrifice for its growth. Um. Audrey, too, becomes a metaphorical representation of Seymour's greed, which grows and grows until it consumes himself and Audrey, the woman he loves. See, this is where, see, I think the musical is a great example of a remake doing just what we were talking about before. The fact of the matter is the, the musical is a remake, and it takes material that is relatively superficial on the surface and finds deep, like, classic universal timeless themes all of these themes are just as important today as they were in 1986 or 1950 i mean whatever whatever 59 they're always they, they were always important and that's what makes um and that's why like i'm always open to like remakes i guess in that kind of way you can transform mediocre material into something truly great with the right you know mind and ashman is brilliant ashman was a brilliant brilliant guy 
and he, you know, he'd go on to write the movie as well. Um, uh, the tragedy is a cautionary tale about how the pursuit of monetary gain and social status can corrupt what is most valuable in life. The musical's final number is an impassioned plea to the audience not to feed the plants, no matter what they promise, because that's what happens. Seymour gets promised all these things. He gets promised a, a motorcycle, a leather jacket, and then he gets promised Audrey, the original Audrey, who, who Seymour named the plant after in the first place. Um, and, and we Seymour ultimately finds out that he doesn't need the plant to get Audrey's affections. They were there all along. And so the plant almost becomes a non-necessity or, you know, as well as spelling, spelling their doom, you know, spelling out their doom. Uh, with the threat of Audrey too looming over the audience, this experience varies between productions. You know, the, the plant changes with productions. And I've watched some YouTube videos of the various different uh, plant designs. They're, they're all brilliant. They're all interesting. And um, the way that they're, they're puppeted, I mean, it's so creative. It's so, so creative. Um, Ashman practically begs viewers not to seek profit at the expense of one's community and the well-being of loved ones, lest they suffer the consequences. And there's our two doomed lovers right there, uh, Seymour and Audrey. With Ashman writing the screenplay of the 1986 film version of the musical, naturally titled Little Shop of Horrors, it only made sense that he would keep this ending, especially with Oz in agreement with Ashman on its importance. So Frank Oz was so completely committed to the ending, that this original vision. Like in the musical, Seymour, played by Rick Moranis, fails to save Audrey, played by Ellen Green, who originated the role, from Audrey 2, played by Levi Stubbs, as we said, who's kind of channeling Screaming Jay Hawkins. And she dies in his arms, asking Seymour with her final words, these are her final wishes, to feed her to the plant. So he takes the one thing that he loved and gives it to the plant. When Seymour tries to kill the plant, it eats him and goes on to conquer the world. Just as Ashman up the ante from the 1960s version, he and Oz found ways to make the doom and gloom of the new Little Shop of Horrors bigger and badder. After Audrey's death, Seymour contemplates um, ending things, if you know what I mean. To demonstrate Audrey 2's victory at the end of the story, uh, Frank Oz had effects designers Richard Conway and Brand Farron concoct an extensive sequence depicting the massive Audrey 2 plants destroying New York City in a in a raucous raucous in a raucous rampage ruckus rampage what the hell is that word what is that word let's look it up raucous i can't pronounce it um let's see here raucous making or constituting a disturbingly harsh and loud noise oh ruckus ruckus of course whoops Oopsies, ruckus, rampage. Despite Geffen's warnings about the ending, both Ashman and Oz felt that their grand tragedy was ready to sweep the nation. That is until the test screenings for the film bombed. As we said, here we go. With 13% recommendation rate from test screenings, the Little Shop team needed to overhaul the ending to have any hopes of getting the movie into theaters. Ashman, because like I said, you need at least a 50. Ashman wrote a new ending in which Seymour saves Audrey just in time and manages to electrocute Audrey too. What a cop out, killing it. With a lick of irony, Seymour and Audrey marry and embrace the 1950s ideal 
that the stage musical lambasts with ex with expert tongue and cheek wit. So the movie ends up almost becoming like farcical, not farcical, like a like a total cop out. Yeah, like a far like a farce. Like it just becomes ridiculous because they end up like that they don't experience the consequences of what they created like they the, the the movie is meant to be a tragedy it even has a greek chorus the three street urchin girls they, they're called the street urchins that's the greek chorus for the greek tragedy that that has be, befallen us so to have a greek tragedy end with a happy ending it just doesn't work it has to end with the plants uh on top of the of the of the statue of liberty um Ashman trades the explicit nature of the original cuts warning for an ambiguous ending, closing on a shot of an Audrey two pod in Seymour and Audrey, Audrey's garden bed for audiences at the time. This dark tinge was just enough to complement the morbid themes of the story with an otherwise blissful, happily ever after the film was released and grossed 39 million. So they did that for a $39 million gross. And believe me, it's lauded and venerated and everybody loves Little Chapel Horrors. But imagine how much more of an impact it might have had. Now, it here's one thing that is very interesting. Um, well, let me let's let's keep reading and then I'll, I'll get to that. Uh, while this was considered an underperformance by the studio, the film became a smash hit on home video in 1987. It earned several award nominations and praise from film critic Roger Ebert for its offhand Casual Charm, who also predicted its future cult film status. Um, and just so you're aware, we are sponsored by RiotStickers.com. They are the sponsors for this channel, one of the many sponsors we have. Um, here is here is a Riot sticker right here. If you need Riot Stickers, if, I mean, if you need stickers, just go to RiotStickers.com. We're currently doing a contest. They printed this beautiful banner behind me. We're running a special contest with Riot Stickers right now. If you go to ridesickers.com backslash win, you can enter to win 20 free custom design shirts, anything you want. If you want to put uh, Audrey 2 from Little Shop of Horrors on your 20 custom shirts, you probably can do that. Well, maybe not Audrey because that's copyrighted. But if you want to put a Venus flytrap on 20 custom shirts and you win the the raffle, the, the entry thing, you will get 20 free custom shirts, free shipping. Uh, within the content of the United States, I believe. Don't quote me on that. Could be wrong. Um, and yeah, we're just really stoked. Uh, we're still running the special promo deal, the special uh, for the 50 stickers. That is with the promo code from us. That's down in the comments. Look in the descriptor. You'll find it. But remember, riotstickers.com backslash win. Let's watch our little video video uh, about it. Hi, I'm a guy from riotstickers.com, the merch company known for being the bomb. Do you hate going to work? But like getting paid? Do you hate snow? But want to make sweet, sweet love to a snowman? That was unexpected. All right, what about this? Do you hate paying for stuff, but like having custom t-shirts? You are in luck. We can't help with the snowman thing. That's probably going to take a therapist. But RiotStickers.com is giving you a chance to win a free order of custom shirts. And entering is easier than like making sweet, sweet Get her out of here. All you have to do is simply go to riotstickers.com slash win and enter your name and email address. Riot Stickers will have a random drawing to pick a winner. So head to riotstickers.com slash win for your chance to win free custom shirts. And be sure to check out other custom merch while you're there because it is the bomb. Riotstickers.com, Riot Stickers, we are the bomb. Riot 
And the truth, riotstickers.com backslash win. Make sure you enter. In a 2017 interview with Collider, Frank Oz shares his account of the first test screenings that prompted the reshoots. They were clapping after, I feel like reading this like Yoda. They were clapping after every single number they did. It was amazing. No, I can't do that. It was amazing. What didn't go well was the very last part of the ending where Ellen and Rick were both killed by the plant and the plant won. It was 30 years ago, and I think we had a bit more of a period that was not as cynical as we have today. So today it might work, but then the ending was not satisfying, which I understand, and Howard did too. So they, they're they very cognitive and aware of the situation. There's Audrey about to be eaten by um, Audrey too. It's only fitting that Audrey would be eaten by her namesake. As odds as Oz alludes to, the cultural con- consciousness of movie-going America has evolved significantly since 1986. That is true. In subsequent years, the box office began to display representations of the harsh reality Americans were forced to live through. 2008's The Dark Knight, for instance, was hailed as a dark and gritty interpretation of a comic book superhero with a villain that operated as an unambiguous terrorist and a conflict that hinged itself on the fragile line between chaos and order. In the decade after 9-11, the American populace became intimidatedly familiar with the ideas of moral ambiguity, while popular opinion of America's position in the Middle East waned. I mean, it is true to note, if you look at movies in the 80s, in general, most of the time, a movie has to have a happy ending. You know, they it just it just does with tragedy and distrust baked into the psyches of American audiences. This cynical change in mood was heavily represented in the practices of Hollywood's biggest films. No shortage of disaster films, hyper realistic war stories, desolate dystopias and post apocalyptic landscapes adorned marquees in the years following the tumultuous headlines of the 2000s, 2010s, the notion of a morally gray hero paying consequences for his harmful actions has since become a little bit more commonplace in American cinema. Um, So it's really just ahead of its time. It's ahead of its time. And had it come out today, it probably would be an even bigger smash. Probably would have won some Oscars, maybe. We as an audience no longer require an idyllic fate for our favorite characters. Film professor Jamshid uh, Akrami elaborates to the guardian we live in an in angst ridden times and so the appeal of these movies is further amplified most of us seem to seek mental relief by drowning ourselves in a sea of doom and gloom for a couple of hours the experience can be some sort of catharsis and ultimately for me in general i was just talking about this tonight when i went to go see the northman seeing the northman you know, uh, Northman's a revenge story, and with revenge, you need catharsis. If you don't have an, a, a catharsis at the end of your revenge story, it's not going to be a complete story. And so it's required that you have catharsis. And at the same time, you can't bank on catharsis. It needs to be just one component in a stew. You know what I mean? It's not just the be all end all. Our age of anxiety is marked not exclusively by disaster and conflict, but also by rapid change. Social, technological and political shifts have made particularly large waves over the past 40 years. 
Hollywood's recent trend with films that that depict wholesale destruction is likely popular at the box office because they resonate with America's deep-seated angst in the face of widespread transformation. The fact that there are a total of five movies in the Purge series is a pretty hefty indicator that audiences have become much more comfortable with the thought of indulging in visions of widespread chaos and violence. Look at all the zo- look at all the post-apocalyptic films. Look at all the zombie films, which also are apocalyptic films, because you can't, you know, in general, that, that leads to that. Here's a screenshot, by the way, from the chaos. Look at these sets. Forced perspective, obviously, in some cases. These sets are just unreal, absolutely unreal. And it's, you know, it, it's easy to see how $5 million got spent. In my opinion, $5 million well spent. Uh, What we look for in a cinematic escapism has dramatically changed. Audiences once sought the simple fulfillment of an idealistic vision of the world. And now there's a part of us that yearns to see a bit of the darkness of our lives reflected and represented on the screen. These threats are typically conquered by a strong hero, one with which audiences can relate and vicariously experience the conflict through. And that's part of the catharsis. Hollywood's threats were once specific emblems of whatever fear dominated a film zeitgeist, but now they are the all-encompassing. For an example, look no further than the second highest grossing film of all time, Avengers Endgame. Granted, the success of the movie is built on the foundation of a decade of hype, 21 other movies, Uh, but its subject matter proves a powerful point about how modern audiences enjoy films. In features, the grim reality of an unimaginable apocalypse that claims half of all life in the universe uh, is remedied with the death of the franchise's most beloved hero. In the year 2022, movie audiences would hardly shy away from Ashman's original ending. We've honestly kind of seen worse by now. This moment in movie history presents a unique opportunity with a remake of the Little Shop of Horrors film announced by Warner Brothers. Ashman's original ending could be realized on the big screen in a monstrous operatic epic with plenty of star power attached. You have Taron Egerton, Scarlett Johansson, Chris Evans, and Billy Porter. A Little Shop remake could dig into the gruesome, wacky tone of the story in such a grandiose way that not even Frank Oz with his 23-minute plant rampage could imagine. So, yeah, so the ending, there's about nine. It's not 23 minutes. It's like 19 ex- extended minutes of movie. There's nine. Could you imagine discovering one day that there's a 19 minute alternate ending where the plants take over the world? Like it blew my mind to know that because I did not realize that. Now, what had happened was the work print, a black and white work print of that ending of was going to make it to uh, the first DVD release. Uh, until it was recalled, but a few copies snuck loose and it started to circulate on the internet. And then when we got the Blu-ray release, a proper restoration was done. We got the proper director's cut. And now for the last, I don't even know how many years since that came out, I've only ever watched the director's cut. Um, the the original with the original intended ending. Who wants the the theatrical ending? It's just, it's a cop-out, man. It's a total, total cop-out. It could finally do what Oz and Ashman could not do in their time and get movie audiences to not only accept the stage musical's ending, but get them to embrace and apply its passionate message. But, you know, you really don't need to do that because when you watch this movie on Blu-ray, you can now see that ending. The ending has been restored. It is a restored lost ending, you know? Um, So this article is 
a very well written article. I loved what um, the the author says, but I would say, I would disagree in the sense that it is out there. It's out there now. You don't have to worry about you know seeing it or not. Uh, whether Warner Brothers will seize the opportunity remains to be seen. And with the film on indefinite hold, I didn't know that. Okay, so it's on indefinite hold. There's no guarantee audiences will get to see a new rendition at all. However, if the Little Shop remake does come to grace our screens, and if it does choose to hold Seymour and Audrey to the macabre to their macabre fates, we will be ready for it. Um. So yeah, that's it. I just, I, man, I, I don't. I, we we already got it. It's out there. Like this isn't this isn't we we are not dependent on whatever a remake whether a remake comes or does not come. And I'll tell you one thing that w- would have me weary about a little shop remake is like how much of this plan is going to be CGI. You this is a plant what they did like the way that they had to lip sync the plant you know that was essentially a puppet. They made a puppet sing Audrey 2 feels real, feels like its own real thing. It's a is a living and breathing antagonist made antagonist made from stuff that's not living. What what a feat. It, truly uh truly a feat to accomplish. Um do you want a remake? What do you think of the original ending? Do you prefer the theatrical ending or the original director's cut ending? Did you even know there was a director's cut ending? What are you waiting for? Go and buy it on Blu-ray and watch it with the way it was intended to be seen. I'm sure Frank Oz feels really good that the ending is has been restored uh, to its proper glory. I, I know it makes me feel good. Um, that's all I got for you. Make sure to tune in all this week. We got more shows coming, more stuff coming. Uh, we got Patreon content coming. By the way, uh, if you don't know about the Patreon, let me tell you a little bit about it. Uh, In the meantime, peace, hair grease. Have a wonderful Saturday night. Hey, guys, what's going on? It's Jeff. So I've decided to make a Patreon. What is Patreon? I don't know how to define a Patreon. Let me look it up. Patreon is a membership platform that makes it very easy for creators to get paid for the things that they're already creating. I want to do it full time. I want this to be my full time job. In my efforts to make that happen, I've set up this platform. Is it going to work? Is it going to be successful? I don't know. But I would rather try and crash and burn than not try at all. The goal is to create enough passive revenue so that I can continue to do this full-time, uninterrupted. Why? Because I love to do this. I love creating content. I love making videos. I love shooting films. I love doing podcasts. In case you couldn't tell, I love to talk and I never shut the fuck up. (laughs) So right now I've kept the Patreon incredibly simple. There's two tiers and that may change in the future. The Murdergram is a simple way to extend support for all of the hours and hours of free content on the channel for nothing more than a dollar. 38 cents goes to Patreon. What's a buck 38, eh? It's less than a cup of coffee. But it's a great way that you can show support for very little effort. When you divide that dollar 38 by the hours and hours and hours of time spent listening to this endless drivel of content, the dollar cost average works out. Next up is the YouTube casualty for $6.66. <laughs> 
The YouTube casualty is loaded to the gills. Enjoy the archive ad-free as well as ad-free early access to special docu-style podcast videos, music reaction commentaries, and the like a month before they drop on YouTube, loaded with ads, I might add. You're also going to get exclusive content and behind-the-scenes content that is not available on YouTube or anywhere else. So you get to peek behind the veil. And believe me, there's a couple of choice pieces. Most of all, more than anything, whether you join the Patreon or not, I just want to thank each and every one of you that comes to the channel, that watches all the shows, that leaves comments, that participates, that subscribes. That's really the most important thing. This is just trying to find a way to earn a living as an artist. And with that, thank you for my TED Talk. Join the Patreon, because we need you! 66 cents.